812 in the evening, 720 WGN. Another huge thank you to our panelists, Stephanie Lulay, Jody Cohen, and Stacy St. Clair. You can listen to the podcast of Andre and the Reporters. It'll be up a little later on tonight at WGNRadio.com. The textures are still pouring in. Really enjoyed the episode. Great show. Uh, people loving Stacy's stories about her coverage from the Sochi Olympics in Russia. Thanks to Block Club Chicago for taking over where DNA info left off. We love that. That's from the 312. And people saying, please come out to the Women's March and the rally on Saturday. So that's going to be taking place in Federal Plaza. We switch gears a little bit now. We are still going to be talking about all things Chicago as part of, for the next two hours, as part of Andrea Chicago. And then Patty Vasquez will be on at 10 o'clock and Nick DiGilio on after Patty. We welcome to the studio my good friend and someone who's been doing good in this town for many, many years, Joe Ahern. You know his name from every media outlet, specifically CBS. You were there for many years, now the CEO of the 100 Club of Chicago. Thanks for being here, Joe. Oh, thanks, Andrea. Always, Thank you so much for having oh, me. Oh, it's on. always a pleasure to have you in studio. And the work that you do at one at, at 100 Club is is just rewarding and wonderful and and thank thankless it really is just everything you do is just you can't say enough well, about you. how much you thank do you at the so 100 much. club tell everybody about the 100 club and, and what you do the work you do there well andrea the 100 club is a charity a 501c3 that's been around for 52 years when a police officer or firefighter or anyone in state local federal law enforcement uh, dies in line of duty we uh, cover um and give the uh, family uh, $50,000, and then we send all the kids to college. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, sadly, over the last 52 years, we've had uh, 270 uh, line-of-duty deaths. And right now, we have um, we have 30 kids that are all sons and daughters of police officers and firefighters that are in college on 100 club scholarships. And with the, you know, very tragic 2018 and this latest uh, a uh, state trooper that died over the weekend. Awful. Uh, trooper uh, Lambert. Um, he had a 14-month-old daughter, mm-hmm. and so uh, that uh, we will have 77 kids in the future that we will be able to help and send to college in the future. And if you just do the math, it's over five million dollars of of uh, potential, uh, you know, scholarship funds. That that's what I do is go out and raise money and raise awareness for the Hunter Club so we can continue to do our mission and provide for these families who have paid a terrible, terrible price in protecting all of us. 2018 was a very, very tough year for Chicago. Six line of duty deaths. That means nine sons and daughters were left behind. And it just, you know, covering these stories and the funerals and the the last one, especially, especially it was just so gut-wrenching where uh, one of the officer's daughters got up and gave a eulogy at St. Rita's, and then and then the two officers um, killed by the train, um, those were back-to-back funerals. Marmaleo and Gary. Yes. Yes, back I was there. I was back. there with them today to, Just. to, to meet with them. And uh, it was uh, Maria Marmaleo's daughter who gave that who eulogy. Who gave the speech. just absolutely beautiful and and uh, it's hard enough to give a, a eulogy, but being 15 years old and talking yeah. about your dad, how poetic and how fluent she was and how she really just gave such a moving, moving eulogy. It, it really was. We talked about that this afternoon, and I said that it was absolutely uh, stunning that she had the courage, but it was really heartfelt as she wanted to do it. And uh, for a 15-year-old young gal, she's a sophomore in high school, yeah. uh, to get up there and speak so uh, poignantly about her dad and uh, and beautifully. Um, 
uh, it's a really something. It's why the 100 Club is so wonderful as well, because you don't just say, cut a check, or here's the money, and then leave. Like you said today, Joe, I mean, I know you, I see you out there, you stick with the families, and you go through day by day, and I know every day... You're saying, all right, who can I, who can I, where can I go today? You know, this isn't just a once, one and done. No, when a, we when we lifetime. show up, we say we're for, we're with the hundred club family, and we'll be with your family for the forever. And that's the way it works, and that's the way it should be. I mean, these families have paid the ultimate sacrifice, and anything we can do to help make it uh, easier for them over the next one, three, five years and beyond is is really important. It's the least that we could do. Mike Maher joins us in studio, the new president of the one hundred club. Hi, Mike. Hi. Good evening. Oh, let me pop you on there. Let's try that. Hi, good evening, Andrea. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, we appreciate you coming in on this on this cold evening to talk about the 100 right. Club. And I was just saying to Joe, this isn't just a, a one and done. This is a, a lifetime commitment that the 100 Club makes to not just provide monetary scholarships and, and, and for the families and children of the fallen officers, but just let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's sit around and talk. Let's hang out. So it's a, it's a lifetime of giving. Right. This is. It's probably. Uh, I was recently um, uh, installed as president of the board, and I was really honored to do it. But I was telling the board at that time, this is probably the most important assignment I've ever had in my life. I mean, it's it's really humbling, and an absolute honor to be there for these families in their time of need. And we've gone through some very difficult days recently, Joe, together. And I think most recently, um, it's also rewarding when we went to the officer Flisk. Uh, when the street 100th and Artesian was renamed after yeah. Michael Flisk, and to yeah. see a family eight years later, and to see a, a, a beautiful uh, law school graduate who is now oh, succeeding wow. in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and their son who is a graduate of uh, was it Ambrose Ambrose, Ambrose University yeah. where he played rugby, and he's in the police academy now. So that too is it's amazing to see the circle of uh, recovery it is quite a circle joe was saying uh just a few seconds ago mike that you have the largest number of kids there's 30 kids in colleges currently and 76 more that will come of age in the future and presently i didn't know this 24 colleges and universities now offering full scholarships isn't that amazing that is amazing yeah Yeah, when i came in in uh, 2010 it was uh, mike flisk uh, the evidence technician who was uh, tragically uh, murdered yeah. And uh, and I went to uh, Father Garanzini, who was the president of Loyola University at the time, mm-hmm. and I asked him uh, if he would help with a, with a scholarship uh, for one of the kids. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two full scholarships. And uh, and I said, oh, my, you know, I was stunned. And he said, and I'll uh, go to uh, Reverend Holtschneider, who was at DePaul then. He said, and I know he'll match. And then we'll go to St. Xavier and Benedictine and Dominican. He said, and if you get all the Catholics, you'll get all the Protestants. Right, right, because one's not going to do it, not the other, right? It's that Catholic guilt. The, the Greeks right. are like that, too. We have that, that Orthodox guilt. Right. Yeah, you know? We actually <laughs> sat there laughing about that. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy and just so generous. Uh, and uh, and that's what happened. And so um, now we have the University of Illinois mm-hmm. and Northwestern and U- University of Chicago and so many others that have uh, stepped up. And 
when you think about it, uh, with all that uh, scholarship funds available, it's a, it's probably over $4 million in scholarship funds that uh, that is available for the, the sons and daughters. Uh, uh, they they uh, obviously have to meet the academic requirements, right. but, uh, but it helps us to be able to sustain uh, our mission throughout the years. It's hard to raise funds just in general, but I'm sure this would be something that people would really want to open up their, their wallets to and their pocketbooks. Yeah, it, it really is. I think once people find out what this organization is about and, and what we've done and, and the track record of results and the families that we've helped, and you see the generations of families that continue to give back, like the Flisks and and uh, uh, the Johnsons. Uh, Captain Herbie Johnson uh, was tragically killed in November of 2012, and his son, Mickey, uh, uh, went into the fire academy and now is a fireman and uh, his brother and they were both Marines yeah. they, they both served in the U.S. Marine Corps and now uh, his other brother uh, Tommy is a police officer and so when I say that these are generations of families that continue to give back and serve our, our communities well uh, it's not an overstatement in any way, shape, or form. Putting others' lives before yours. We're talking to Joe Ahern and Mike Maher with the 100 Club of Chicago. You guys have some great events coming up where people can get involved and make some donations. We're going to talk about that right after this on 720 WGN. 823-720 WGN. Talking to Joe Ahern, the CEO of the 100 Club of Chicago and the new president, Mike Maher, there's a couple of events coming up that we really want to uh, to get out there. Our first look for charity, the auto show event, that's coming up on February 8th. Tell us a little bit about how uh, everyone can get involved with First Look. This is a really fun event. Uh, thanks, Andrea. Yeah, it's uh, a Friday night, uh, February 8th, and this is our eighth year as one of the 18 charities uh, at the auto show. And that Friday night is the night before the, the show opens up to the general public. It's a black tie gala. They usually have about ten or twelve thousand people there and it is a really fun night just fantastic and you get to see the cars for the first time and uh we have a suite there and uh, people that uh, buy their tickets for the auto show through the 100 Club, uh, about 90% of that goes to the 100 Club, and it allows us to continue to do our mission. But we have a great turnout, and we had a lot of people come out last year, and we hope that people will take advantage of it. Go on our website, 100clubchicago.org, and, and get your tickets for the auto show, and I promise you, there's great food and bars. Oh, and it's the best. It, it, it's really a it fun night. It is the night. best. It goes, to, it goes to a great cause number one and number two the food is fantastic there's drinks appetizers desserts and i love the fact that you take your heels off and they give out slippers. Yeah, or you can walk yeah, around. That's, my, yeah. that's one of my favorite things about it. I know. I pro- I was walking around in pink slippers last year. I know. Year. <laughs> I think it was Cadillac. Who did it? Right. It was Cadillac. Yeah, they were giving out the slippers. <laughs> you can't beat that. The 100 Club is a not-for-profit organization that supports the surviving dependents of law enforcement officers, firefighters, and EMS personnel who lose their lives in the line of duty. Joe, you're also going to be speaking at the City Club luncheon on January 29th. That's always a nice event, too. It's wonderful. I'll tell you, Jay Doherty has done such a great job with that. It's a public policy forum that uh, has been around for years, but Jay has taken it to a new level where... um, if if you want to know what's happening in this town, and uh, it, that's that's the place to be, and it's at Magiano's, uh, uh right over by uh, Grand and Clark, 
and uh, I'm uh, have the privilege of speaking there on the 29th about the Hunter Club, and uh, to talk about all the things that we're doing and how we're uh, helping our families of fallen police and fire. And there's a couple of new initiatives this year we wanted to touch base on too before we uh, let you go. Panel discussions with first responder women in leadership positions in both police and fire, and that perked my ears immediately. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Andrea, we have watched over this past year, especially in 2018, with all the tragedy and violence that we've seen. And and so many times that our police officers, you'll hear about a negative story. And uh, it's hard to imagine how difficult this job is for them. And so we want to elevate that. We want people to know uh, what a commitment it is by our police officers and our firefighters. And it's a commitment for the entire family. And especially now with uh, women that are in uh, you know, police and fire. Uh, I was at uh, today. There was 315 new graduates of the at the Chicago uh, Police Academy, and and so many young women are also you know right. stepping up to to give back and and help protect our uh, community. And so we're going to put a special focus on that this year with panels with. Uh, women in leadership positions in both police and fire to talk about the job and talk about the uh, how difficult it is, but also uh, how they're giving back to make our community a better place to live. And then also technology. Uh, with all the new technology that is taking place, it's uh, helped to make our streets safer and to help our police officers, but it doesn't take away how difficult this job is. Absolutely, and it was a beautiful beautiful ceremony today. We have to give props to Michael Heidemann, our producer, his brother today, was part of that ceremony. So ah, we thank him for his oh, tireless work. Congratulations, yeah. yeah. Big thumbs up. Michael was posting some pictures online, so thank you to your brother, and that's it's wonderful. And, and thank you again, the 100 Club. How can people get involved if they want to learn more about the 100 Club, make a donation, get their first look for charity tickets, which everybody should do, or see you speaking at the City Club, Joe? How do we get involved? Uh, well, go to 100clubchicago.org and uh, go online and uh, and make a donation or please join the 100 Club and, and you'll find out about the many events that we have throughout the course of the year. We have about 100 events, uh, both big and small, and uh, we'd love the people to come out and uh, support our organization. Absolutely. Yeah. I looked up the First Look Chicago uh, website today to make sure how easy it was and uh, you just put in your name, buy your tickets and you select your charity and the 100 Club is one of the top charities there. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And you're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well right. at 100 Club. Sure. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mike, for being here. Thank you for and, having us. And thanks to all the men and women of the police and fire department and first responders who are just, again, putting their lives before all of ours. So well, thank, thank you. you. And I thanks agree. for the work you do. No, thanks so much for being so supportive of our mission. Absolutely. We'll have more after this on 720 WGN. 837 720 WGN. It's me, Andrea Darlis, with you until 10 o'clock. Then Patty Vasquez. Then Nick DeGilio. Wanted to thank uh, our friends from Chicago Culinary Kitchen, Greg and Christina Garbo, for basically feeding all our guests tonight. We've had guests since 7 o'clock. You're still hanging out having your barbecue. So props to you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Tell us a little bit about Chicago Culinary Kitchen. So we are open only on Saturdays and Sundays. We open at 11 a.m. The line starts around 10. Yeah, I've seen the line. (laughs) Yeah. Well, first person line gets a free beer, and then we kick them back out. There you go. (laughs) So it's a little bit of a reward, and then it's like, eh, you know, no, get back outside. Get back outside, yep. Um, But everything is made fresh for that day and time to be done at 11 a.m. And when we're sold out, we're sold out. That's usually around 2 p.m. And where are you located? Northwest Highway in Quinton. In Palatine. 
I'm telling you guys, you have something special going on at Chicago Culinary Kitchen. What is the, I know you can't give it completely away, but what is the, the secret to a good barbecue? Doesn't it have to totally be spicy? Passion. Really? Passion. That's an interesting answer. Is. Let the meat shine through. Okay. We don't sauce anything. Is it We've l- worked on the spice and rubs to let the meats shine through, and that's what we do. Is it low and slow? Certain things are low and okay, slow, and certain the, things are that's hot. That's the only thing I know. <laughs> well, it depends on what, what cut of meat we have, you know, and how, how we're cooking it then. But um, that's the whole reason that we're open for the two days a week, so that you get the freshest barbecue. So there's nothing hidden. Uh, there's no sauce on it. And, you know, we have some amazing specials, too, that we do. If someone's only in town for one day and they can only come in and get two things, what would you have to say you have to get? Most of our customers who are in town or even our regular customers never get just two things. They order basically their favorites off the main menu, which okay. is the Texas barbecue menu. Uh-huh. And brisket. then you do the specials. Which, brisket. Yeah. The brisket's amazing. It's it's Texas barbecue. Um, is that what you brought tonight? No, a prime rib. Oh, my God. It, we smoked you, a prime rib. Do you know we were sitting in here? I know because you guys got here a little while ago, and we smelled it as it was coming off the elevator. I've never just smelled anything so delicious in my life. That always happens because it just goes right through the cooler. Oh, my God. And how do you get people? How do you get the lines? I mean, people just hear about a word of mouth? Uh, yeah, we haven't really advertised. It's been word of oh, mouth. Yeah. Um, basically, we've uh, only advertised on Facebook. Really? So we do also um, classes, um, barbecue and craft beer paired classes. Okay. Barbecue and bourbon paired classes, and a pork and cork, which is a wine and barbecue port, uh, paired class. Now, I love to make ribs at home. Obviously, it's nothing like what you have at Chicago Culinary Kitchen, but would you do a rub first? Or And I have different different family members who make ribs different ways. My uncle always broils them first. And then I have a cousin who just puts the rub on and throws them right on the grill. So what's the best way to get the the the, the, the ribs best are the really simplest. They're they're one of the simplest things that we do. They just go in the pit, and then halfway through the cook, we'll reseason them again, so that this way they're never over salty or anything like that. Because you know, once you over salt something, you can never take it back. That's true. Right. That's true. Um, but ribs take about four hours to cook. But the whole, that's a low and slow item because we use a St. Louis style rib. And when should you put the sauce on? We don't we do. Don't we don't. We don't sauce. It's all rub. Yeah. No kidding. All right. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna put barbecue sauce on it, again, would you put it on toward the end yeah, of the cooking? Yeah, right at the end, uh, okay. about 10, 15 minutes out. Then you can put it on there and cook on there. Remember, a lot of barbecue sauce has a lot of sugar in it. Yeah. So if you put it on to begin with. That will all burn. Oh, right. So we just want to wait a little while until the end, and then it will stick to that as well. And I saw, I think I saw a baked potato bigger than than my head. They're one pounders. <laughs> Those are fantastic. Yeah, they're delicious. The sides go with barbecue, right? I mean, baked beans, whatever it might be. We do pit beans, which is going to be an 18-hour um, basically baked bean. Uh, it's got... Uh, Bacon in it and pulled pork. Oh my god! Uh, we Did you say eighteen? You said eighteen hours, right? Eighteen, 18 hours. hours. We, Holy we cow. smoke them. Yeah. Um, we also do esquites, which is Mexican street corn, but it's in a cup. I love that. Yes. That's, is that cheese and butter? It's cheese, butter, um, lime <laughs> juice, um, a little bit of uh, butter, and uh, cotija cheese. 
um, hatch chilies and sweet onion. And then we also have an effin mac and cheese, uh-huh. which the F stands for flaming hot Cheetos. I was going to say, is it like yeah. E-F-F-E-N? No, you know, people come up and order, you know, Whoa. the and mac and cheese. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I just smile. I'm like, okay. Yeah. But it, the F stands for the flaming hot Cheetos that we put on top. Oh, that's the best. You guys, thank you so much for being here and feeding all of our guests tonight. Thank One more you. plug, Chicago Culinary Kitchen. Tell us the address and how we can find you on social. 773 Northwest um, Quentin Road in Palatine. Okay. And it's www.chicagoculinarykitchen.com. Emails info at chicagoculinarykitchen.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Uh, yeah, no, Twitter. Twitter's too okay. much work. Okay, we'll just do Facebook, <laughs> Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is yeah. Chicago Culinary Kitchen, and Twitter is CCK Kitchen. There you go. Just keep looking for those great pictures of barbecue. Thanks, yes. you guys. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. Best prime rib in the Chicago area. It's Greg and Christina Garbo from Chicago Culinary Kitchen. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. More after this on 720 WGN. 8.45 in the evening, 720 WGN. Talked with our guests a little bit earlier about the mayor's race and the makeup of the city council, what's going to change, what's not going to change in just over a month. Professor Connie Mixon is is just a wonderful resource and probably one of the smartest people I know. She's the director of urban studies and an associate professor of political science at Elmhurst College. And we wanted to have Dr. Mixon on to talk about, oh, not too much going on in the city of Chicago, huh, Connie? Not too much. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being with us. I know you have a new title now, which I didn't include at Elmhurst College, but it has to do with beer, and I'll get to that in just in just a little bit. It does. <laughs> but uh, you provide insight on to on the how the recent proliferation of craft breweries has influenced the cultural landscape of Chicago. So it's more of an educational take on beer. Correct. And we will Correct, talk but about. I do like beer. I, you know, I. I used to, and then I kind of went away from it. So maybe now I'll get a little bit more into it. I'm going to have to take you to some of our local Chicago breweries because Chicago is brewing really great beer these days. Boy, it sure is. I, I read something either, I think Chicago was the number one or number two when it comes to craft breweries in, in, we in are such a concentrated area. We are number as one. Of a few weeks ago. How cool is that? All right, let's go. You know what? Let's go that route, too, because I think people are going to now hear about this and they're going to want to hear your take on on being the beer professor rather than what you think is going to happen in the mayor's race. So let's talk a little bit about both, too. (laughs) You know, this beer professor title, it comes from my students. And you're correct. It's not necessarily not necessarily just because I drink beer, but it comes from, oh, my studying and giving talks about the role of beer in Chicago's political history. And this interest really goes back to a student of mine, Miranda. It was probably about four or five years ago. She was looking for a topic for her senior thesis, and she wanted to do something on gentrification in Chicago. And I was sort of like, well, you know, that's a topic that's been studied a lot. You know, what's the big question? What are you going to add to it? So after hours of talking, we finally came up with the idea that, you know, hey, there's a lot of, you know, brew pubs and microbreweries opening up in Chicago. Maybe there's some connection there. And so this then started my interest in this heady line of academic inquiry and has led to the title of beer professor. Um, Chicago literally got its start in a tavern. 
1833, Chicago was a frontier town with only 200 residents, but there were three bars, and one of them was the Saganash Hotel and Tavern, which is which at the time was located at Wolf Point, um, just west of what we would say today is the Merchandise Mart. So it wasn't in Saganash. No, it was not in Saugatuck, interestingly. Yeah, it was downtown at Wolf Point, and it was at this tavern that 28 voters actually elected our first town officials. So quite literally, Chicago started in a bar. That's super interesting. I know you've done so so much research related to the history of politics and beer in Chicago, and (laughs) you told me that you titled your beer talks A Shot of Politics with the Beer Chaser. Correct, I and I that. do owe that title to my husband. He is the <laughs> one with the good sense of humor. He came up with the title. Do you remember when Mark Kirk, and I think it was Alexi Janulius, yes. remember that? And they had a very yep. hard-fought race against one another. Mark Kirk ended up winning, and they had mm-hmm. the infamous, you know, let's shake hands over a beer at the Billy Goat. And right. they they picked a day and time where they thought nobody would know of, but of course all the press is camped out. And ex- Alexi Janulia showed up, I think, in a trench coat and a baseball cap, you know, trying to right. just hide on lower on lower Wacker. But I think that tradition, you know, either the handshake over a beer has continued for generations, especially in Chicago. Right. So these sort of beer summit type things. Yes, yeah, exactly. They, they've gone on forever. And, um, you know, there's a long history that we could, you know, that in my talk, I get a lot into the history. I talk about the lager beer riot of 1855 in which Germans actually rebelled against the city for imposing restrictions on taverns. And I talk about the Chicago fire. Um, interestingly, Chicago was really sort of this brewing capital of the United States. And then the Chicago fire hit. And most of our brewers went up to Milwaukee. And Chicago, yeah. So most of our brewers went to Milwaukee after the Chicago fire. And um, a little bit later, there was the Columbian Exposition. And this is real trendy right now amongst millennials, those in the PBRs. Yeah. It's real cool to drink a PBR. Well, if you look at the PBR can, it's got this blue ribbon on it, right? Mm -hmm. And. this comes from the Columbian Exposition in which every can of PBR says it was selected as America's best in 1893. And I really hate to disappoint all of those hipster PBR fans, but it's not entirely accurate. Um, Frederick Papps just simply declared himself the winner of a non-existent grand prize at the Columbian Exposition. He got the same medals as everybody else, but he was a really shrewd marketer. Immediately following the Columbian Exposition, he had his entire brewery in Milwaukee draped in blue ribbon and gave all of his workers the day off. And then he actually had America's Best printed on every can and bottle. No, So self-proclaimed, basically. Right, self-proclaimed. And at the time, there were no, you know, truth in advertising laws. Holy cow, how much was a beer back then? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. Not very much. I can tell you that yeah. at the Columbian Exposition, Anheuser-Busch spent about $20,000, but Pap spent a million dollars just on their displays. But I have no idea what a beer costs then. That would be a good Google question. Boy, isn't that interesting? So all the stories that you're telling about Pabst, uh, PBR, um, Schlitz Mm -hmm. was another one. All the beers that were super popular then kind of went away and then became sort of a novelty in the 90s. I know there was a bar in Bucktown Wicker Park area called Cans, 
and they right. had all the old cans of beer. The, yep, the, the old cans, Remember all that? on walls. Yeah, it was, it was all that. And then now with the resurgence of craft breweries, I love the fact that Chicago is number one. And I noticed two kind of specific areas, like South Loop has so many, and then mm-hmm. North Center. It, it just depends on where you are in the city. But what do you attribute the resurgence to? Well, you know, I think part of it is part of this, you know, return to local, um, local identity, that it's now cool to eat and drink locally. That's something I'm interested in, you know, someone who studies urban studies. But beer, just like a Caesar salad, you know, we don't want a beer that's traveled 3,000 miles. And craft beer is usually tied to local place, their name for the towns they're in, or after some historical event, um, like Haymarket, for example, in yeah. Chicago. And, you think you know, you talked about, you know, where they're located, and this was one part of the research I did with my student, mm-hmm. was what what we found at the end of it was that, you know, these sort of brew pubs that serve food and beer, they tend to locate in already gentrified areas, so the South Loop, you know, Lincoln Park, West Loop kind of areas, but the breweries themselves tend to locate outside of gentrified areas because they need more warehouse space. That's one of the things that we don't talk about. You know, since the 70s, Chicago has lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, but beer really is manufacturing. It's heavy-duty manufacturing that provides a lot of jobs. And these breweries are opening up in areas just outside of gentrified areas. But what happens is when those breweries locate in those areas, they themselves serve as a variable that then encourages increased gentrification in those areas. That's interesting. About what time or what time period would you think that that did beer become the breaking bread drink? When did it become integrated with politics? Oh, gosh. Well, we can go back to probably, you know, the... You know, Chicago... Well, you could actually go back to... uh, you know, revolutionary times. Um, I was just doing a little bit of research, and I don't remember all the uh, all the details of it. But American history with beer, and some of our forefathers um, were engaged in the brewing business. And there was um, a historian who actually found the receipt following the Constitutional Convention huh. at from a restaurant. Um, in Philadelphia that had the receipt for the tab of just tons of beer. So think about our forefathers. You know, they're, they're assy. You know, they're at the hall. They, they all sign the Constitution. They just walk down the street and all have a beer. Holy cow. And your research, <laughs> I think this is so, it's just so fascinating to me how far back it goes and the ties. And your research also addresses how breweries have served as an agent of gentrification in so right. many of our neighborhoods, especially today. Right. Right. And I also look at some of the the more current ties between beer and politics. So Mayor Richard M. Daley wasn't necessarily a fan of craft brewing. He wasn't as beer friendly. He sort of had this vision of Chicago as this orderly, clean, family-friendly city. It was pretty tough to get a liquor license. Um, And Rahm Emanuel came in, and things really changed. By all accounts, Mayor Emanuel has been much more friendly to craft beer and 
and is really responsible for putting Chicago on the craft beer map. Craft beer really exploded during his tenure. Now, we can talk about some of the ways that it, you know, exploded. We can talk about tiffs that breweries got. We can talk about (laughs) zoning variances, um, political contributions, campaign contributions that went to Rom. So, I mean, all of these things are tied together. Um, But he certainly pushed Chicago as a beer destination. The city now has a page on its um, Choose Chicago website that's dedicated solely to craft beer and the Chicago beer experience. Um, And, you know, as as you said, we've got more breweries than any other city. Um, As of the end of 2018, we've got 167 breweries in the Chicago metropolitan region. And, you know, Denver is the closest with 158th and Seattle and San Diego. And these are, you know, cities that we really thought were at the forefront of craft beer. And Chicago has, you know, now replaced them and has gotten the reputation as this brewing destination. I love it. So much for Oregon, so much for Washington, so much for Milwaukee, so much for Chicago. It's all about Chicago and our beer. Right? There's some interesting connections, too, to, to national politics. Um, yeah. A, if you've got time, I'll tell you a quick story about um, President Obama. When he was here um, declaring the Pullman District in Chicago a national monument, yeah. you know, he gives a speech, and he's on the rope lines shaking hands with folks as he's going through the rope line, and he shakes the hand of you know, this guy who's standing there, and he's like, yeah, you know, I own a brewery here in the neighborhood. And the guy goes back to the brewery which was Argus Brewery. Argus, I was going to say, I've been there. Yeah, and a few minutes, you know, a few hours later, the Secret Service calls, and they ask for four cases of the beer to put on Air Force One. (laughs) That's so cool, isn't it? It is, and then there's a connection, too, with um, our current president, um, with Five Rabbit. Um, brewery that's in Bedford Park, you know, that there's a small Latin American brewery, and they got this big contract um, to brew Trump Golden Air, uh, um, Ale at Trump Brewery, or I mean at Trump Tower, sorry uh-huh. about that, and, um, you know, it's a pretty big deal for the small little brewery, and during the campaign when Trump made certain remarks about Mexican immigrants, they actually pulled their handle from the brewery. And um, they gave it. They gave that beer a new name, and I'm not sure my Spanish is very good, but it's Chinga Tupelo. Oh God! And <laughs> I know. Is, I I know. I know what that means. And, um, right. and you can use your now, imagination. <laughs> right, right, right. Or, or, or you can Google it. Um, there is actually now a documentary coming out about Five Rabbit Brewery. Just chronicling, you know, their history and, you know, and the courage it took to pull their hand off from Trump Tower. Well, I love this discussion with you. I'm going to ask you to hold on the line. We're going to take a quick break, do a little news. We're talking to Dr. Connie Mixon, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Elmhurst College, and also the beer professor for your history (laughs) lesson on beer in Chicago politics. And we'll have much more with Dr. Mixon after this on 720 WGN. 908-720-WGN. We continue with our conversation with Professor Connie Mixon from Elmhurst College, the beer professor, but we all know her, of course, as the Associate Professor of Political Science there. Connie, uh, some big news, of course, last week, Alderman Ed Burke was indicted. The last time we spoke to you, you said this was imminent, this was coming, and it certainly has. Now, he's waived his right to a uh, an appearance on Friday. How do you see mm-hmm. this all shaping up? How do you see this this ending? Boy, 
you know, it's hard to tell. And one of the things that I wonder is if this is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, he's been investigated numerous times and nothing has really stuck. And this time seems a little bit different than, you know, previous times. And the feds have asked for a three-month extension, which means, you know, that's going to put us three months out. But the interesting part about it is they have they've got months of Burke's cell phone taps. And according to the complaint, the FBI um, received a judge's approval to wiretap Burke's cell phone, and and the feds were already recording his calls long before the alleged Burger King shakedown Mm -hmm. began to unfold in May of 2017. So, you know, I don't, you know, of course, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea what's coming, but it just does make me wonder whether or not there could be other and perhaps even more serious or bigger charges coming. Do you think that this will eventually, or sooner rather than later, change the makeup of the council? That's the rumbling that I keep hearing, that this is really uh, the the Jenga piece that makes everything tip over, and we're going to see a whole new city council one year from now. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I would have said that even before the all of this with Burke, although this is certainly helping a lot of the more progressive candidates that are running. Um, 44 of the city's 50 aldermen are running for a re-election, and there's only four of them that are unopposed. The rest of them all have challengers. So what I suspect is that there's changes coming, and the Progressive Caucus will almost certainly pick up seats. But what's unclear at this point is whether or not the Progressive Caucus will pick up enough seats to really push the city council into a position where it can act as a co-equal legislative branch of Chicago's government and whether or not they'll pick up enough seats to really serve as an effective check on mayoral power. And Chicago, by charter, operates as a strong council, weak mayor system, but the city council has just relinquished all of their power to the mayor. Um, interestingly, Rahm Emanuel has a more, more of a rubber stamp city council than either one of the dailies. And so this would take new leaders in city council that are willing to take some of their power back rather than just ceding it to whoever happens to be our next mayor. Well, it'll absolutely be interesting. Connie, would you come back with us in a week or two, and we'll talk about all the new developments? Oh, I'd be happy to. Because they're changing every day. So They do. They change and quite where, quickly. Where can we find you? I know Elmhurst College, the alumni magazine, just uh, did a real nice piece about you. I think they talked a lot more about the beer professor. All of our texters are interested in that, too, by the way. <laughs> Talking about the Yard House and Argus and Three Floyds. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you you got to come back and tell us more stories. I'd be glad to. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Connie. That's Dr. Connie Mixon from Elmhurst College. She is the Associate Professor of Political Science there. And also, 
the beer professor. I think we had more fun learning about all the all the brews out there. But as long as we're talking city politics, let's open the books. We go from Professor Mixon to Adam Angieski, our friend from OpenTheBooks.com, uh, founder of Open the Books, which is one of the largest private databases of government spending in the world. And Adam, every time you come on, um, you you fill me with knowledge, but I get very scared. Well, thanks for your interest in our work, Andre. I'm very happy to be on the program here this, uh, this evening. We love having you. And the last article that you did for Forbes really piqued my curiosity, showing that Mayor Emanuel, our outgoing mayor, uh, is leaving, but not with a little bit of a legacy for showering city employees with more overtime, extra pay and cash benefits than I think we've ever seen. Well, I, I think Emmanuel thought he was going to run for re-election. What our data shows that we captured from City Hall is that he showered the city workforce with nearly a half billion dollars worth of extra pay. That's on top of the very lucrative salaries for the public employees of the city. This is overtime, extra pay, and cash benefits. It, Andre, it's so lucrative that 3,000 city employees pocketed at least forty grand of this extra pay. A piece. And and nearly 15,000 workers, with the extra pay included, made over $100,000 last year in the city. Adam, didn't Mayor Emanuel at one point say, and I'm quoting, I will order a forensic audit of city spending? Well, this was this was back in 2010. Mm-hmm. So in, in 2009 and 10, I had just come off the... Uh, the uh, uh, campaign trail for governor of Illinois in the Republican primary, which I lost that race by about 5% of the vote. And I, I, I didn't invent the forensic audit. It was Kathleen Sebelius out of Kansas who had effectively cleaned up Kansas budget with a forensic audit. And obviously she ended up in the Obama administration. Um, but when she was governor of Kansas, she was very effective with it. I ran on it. After I was done, um, the message resonated across the state, and Rahm Emanuel picked it up, and he, he said that on day one, he promised to scrub the waste and efficiencies, that he will, quote, I will order a forensic audit of city spending, but he just never followed through. What do you think is going to have? We're going to have a new mayor. First of all, were you surprised when Mayor Emanuel said he is not going to seek re-election? I think everyone was surprised. Yeah, he I was. The odds on favor to win with all the problems in the city. Um, he he, uh, it looked like he had a lock, or you know, I mean, it was going to be a very, very uh, tough race to beat him. Is he leaving behind a legacy of overspending? Well, I think so. Let's just take a look at some of the the people in City Hall, uh, you know, in the administration that just made a ton of money last year. You have a water filtration engineer, Clarence Wisner, and last year he tripled his pay. He's got a base salary of 115000 but he made a quarter million dollars worth of overtime. He made more in overtime than Rahm Emanuel made in salary last year. Wisner's total pay was $344,000. What I find so interesting, maybe not interesting, because I think we all knew a lot of this pay-to-play was continuing. The The Chicago machine is still alive and well, and I think we're seeing it now with the indictment. Um, and the what the complaint, I should say, the details in that indictment against Alderman Ed Burke. And then you had Ginger Evans actually coming out and, and saying, oh, you know what, this was just this is the way it was, you know, with the shakedowns and the, the, the pay to play. I'm just wondering if at any point and Governor Rauner, before he left office, Adam, said that this had been going on for, for a long time. When will this I don't it's not even uh, when will these these conflicts of interest ever stop or will they? 
In other words, so when, you when know, it with becomes the alderman- a voting issue, it, when it becomes a voting issue, it'll stop because that's all politicians care about is money and votes. So everybody listening tonight uh, on the radio mm-hmm. can come to our website at OpenTheBooks.com. Um, when you do that, when you look up City of Chicago, we've got we've got every single uh, public employee salary and pension record in the entire country from every single public body online, specific to Illinois and the city. Uh, Ginger Evans last year, you just referenced her. She was the commissioner of aviation. Looks like she's spilling the beans on Burke and the city council. Right. But she, she made the most money in the entire administration. Last year, she made $400,000. So it's very interesting that she's breaking bad. Yeah, that is very interesting. I think as all these revolutions are coming out now, and now we're seeing the old footage of the old council wars and, and Verdoliak and Burke, and this has gone on for decades in Chicago, and it did become business as usual. But now again, I think with the Burke indictment, Adam, and I don't mean to be repetitive about it, but now we're seeing all these conflicts of interest come to light again. And I know the voters have to to speak, and I think they will. I just asked Dr. Mixon uh, if she's foresees a huge change in the city council and i think we're going to see a big change whether whether we go down in alderman or replace completely which will happen in this election but i think we are going to start to see a little bit of a change at least we could hope well i I, you know andre i think that the rewards to public employees of salaries perquisites and pension benefits should be the number one public policy issue because it directly affects the delivery of all government services. For instance, on public safety, no one begrudges a nice wage to a Chicago police officer. Never. But the mismanagement of the police budget, you have lieutenants with base salaries of 76000 quadrupling their pay, taking a quarter million dollars of overtime and making $300,000 a year. That is not effective management of the police department workforce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is not- a squandering of public resources, and obviously it's not delivering a safe environment for the people of Chicago. Right, and we're not just focusing on Chicago as well. If you go to OpenTheBooks.com, wonderful articles. Again, we learn a lot, but it's scary to see that this actually goes on. Park Forest, I mean, there are different suburbs where there's just a complete lack of management when it comes to state funding or for cities and villages. Well, in you know, Fox 32 Chicago and our organization at OpenTheBooks.com, we partnered on a co-investigation of supersized salaries in Illinois K-12 through education. So this fall, this investigation has been very effective. Um, Andre, you know that we investigated the all-time most highly compensated Illinois educator, Troy Paraday. He was the superintendent of a small school district over in Calumet City, 1,100 kids. He was making $407,000 a year. They couldn't even get the schools opened on time because of the mold problems. He was going to retire on Halloween. We investigated. He made uh, the disclosure to us that he had 567 unused vacation and sick days. We estimated he was going to go for a final cash check out the door, cashing those in for three quarters of a million dollars. We thought that was outrageous. Dane Placco, the Fox reporter, presented this to their board. They all looked at each other. He was trying to get out the door with a final cash check of $1.73 million, and rather than retiring, they fired him. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like I said, I love reading you, Adam, but 
<laughs> I break out in a cold sweat every time. It's Adam Angievsky with OpenTheBooks.com. Hold on one second. And if you think this is just in politics, mm-mm, sports too. Hold on the line, Adam. More coming up after this on 720 WGN. 922-720 WGN. Talking to Adam Angievsky with OpenTheBooks.com. And talking a little bit about city politics and monetary misuse, misappropriation of funds, as well as the rest of the state of Illinois. But it doesn't stop there, does it, Adam? It goes into football as well. <laughs> we uh, Right before the college football playoffs, we did a piece called Heaven Helps Notre Dame While, uh, while Taxpayers Subsidize Alabama, Clemson, and Oklahoma. <laughs> we pointed out that in our data at OpenTheBooks.com, that Alabama football coach Nick Saban was the most highly compensated public employee at any level, federal, state, and local, and we have 19 million salaries. He was number one. He earned nearly $12 million last year. Uh, over uh, Since 2010, Saban cleaned off $64 million worth of salaries, bonuses, and cash compensation uh, at the University of Alabama. The story also goes on to say that college football coaches, and many in the sports world are aware of this, but many of us who are just don't have our finger on the pulse of college athletics don't realize that college football coaches are the highest paid public employees in the country. They are. They are. There's many of them that earn more than, you know, four or five million dollars. You know, people say that that it's a net-net win for these schools. And we point out in this piece at Forbes that that's not exactly the case. For example, most people don't know that um, Alabama has a ton of debt. Uh, uh, actually, Bloomberg uh, describes this debt as, quote, crippling. Uh, uh, so, for instance, Alabama football is built on a quarter billion dollars that they have borrowed and is payable over the next 28 years. So the Nick Sabans of the world better keep winning. And, of course, he did lose the national championship yeah. to Clemson. Yep, absolutely. Each school, though, I mean, to be fair, they use a different mix of public taxpayer funding and private funding to pay these massive salaries to the head coaches and the that, staff. That's right. And, and each one of these coaches, um, except at Notre Dame, uh, will get a public pension as well. All right, Adam. What what else do we need to know? Wait, let me let me sit well, here. Okay. You know, Chicago, All right, I'm ready. Chicago has its <laughs> Chicago has its problems, Andrea. Yeah. But they, some of these problems pale in comparison to things that we have found around the rest of the country. Uh, for instance, in Los Angeles County, there are 44 lifeguards that last year made between two hundred thousand and three hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars last year, and they get sunscreen allowances on top of it. Wow, it's like Baywatch times 25. Then in New York City, the plumbers are making out. Uh, They cleaned, the plumbers in New York City, uh, 24 of them cleaned off more than $200,000 of overtime alone. Holy cow. So either be a plumber (laughs) in New York or a lifeguard in L.A.? So these these findings are making national news. We uh, we made the New York Post uh, on page six with that story. Uh, the Houston Chronicle did a 22 uh, graphic uh, online uh, segment regarding the high priced public employees in the Houston suburbs. Uh, you know this, these findings have been showcased at the Wall Street Journal. You know on your show on WGN. 
we uh, and at Forbes, we really appreciate the platform. Absolutely. It's every dime online in real time. So where can we find out more about you and your stories, Adam? They're, they're wonderful and very transparent. Well, we've got, uh, we've got an app for this. It's free for Apple and Android. It's called Open the Books. It's a great for cocktail party conversation. It will show you everybody in your hometown or in a 50-mile radius of where you're standing in Illinois or across the country, all public employee salaries. Um, the, uh, the other way you can reach us is, is at our website at openthebooks.com. And I want to talk to you as soon as the mayor's race is over about how much all the candidates spent, Adam, all 1,500 of them. Well, uh, four years ago, we mashed up Rahm Emanuel's campaign uh, donors with the city of Chicago checkbook. Yeah. And we found that, uh, I'm trying to remember back, I think it was 600 city vendors that gave him $7 million, and they had reaped $2 billion of city payments. Wow. Unbelievable. And all these payments, you know, I have to ask you, too, uh, this is this is a big um, bone of contention now with Tony Preckwinkle and Susanna Mendoza and those trying to distance themselves from campaign contributions from the likes of Ed Burke. Once those contributions are made, and and they do decide to keep them, not with these, because Tony Preckwinkle and Susanna Mendoza said that they're giving these back. But when when money is donated to a political campaign, they get to keep that money, the candidate, correct? Win or lose? Not not uh, they don't get to keep it personally any longer. That law was changed about fifteen or twenty years ago. There were people that were grandfathered in mm-hmm. under that uh, law change, and they do get to to keep their um, campaign funds and can take it personally. However, they do have to pay tax on it. There you go. Key, key word: grandfathered in and have to pay taxes on it. <laughs> <laughs> keep on doing what you do, Adam. We love talking to you. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for having me on the program. We appreciate it. Have a great night. That's Adam Angievsky, the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Again, one of the largest private databases of government spending in the world. Take a deep breath before you read the stories, but they are very eye-opening. We'll have more after this on 720 WGN. We're classing it up. It's Andrea Darla, 720 WGN. I'm here till 10 o'clock. Patty Vasquez will take over at 10 o'clock. And we go from politics and beer to more of a refined conversation. And Anna Karenina, the Joffrey Ballet, in its world premiere of Anna Karenina at the Auditorium Theater beginning next month. We're so excited to have in studio the musical director, Scott Speck. Thank you, Scott, for being here. Thank you, Andrea. Great to be here with you. What a coup. I heard that it's pretty rare for any ballet company to commission a full-length score. That's true. It's very rare, and especially a full-length orchestral score. Tell me why it's so rare. Well, for one thing, it's a huge undertaking. A composer maybe has to work for a whole year to write a score that lasts two hours long, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not, um, it's not easy, and it's not cheap, and it takes a lot of vision, and it takes a lot of support on the, um, on behalf of the, the donors of the Joffrey. And the, the vision comes largely from our artistic director, Ashley Weeder, mm-hmm. um, who I've known for some 20 years. Um, he was a phenomenal dancer, and, um, and we met back in um, the days when we both worked for the San Francisco Ballet. He was the uh, associate artistic director there, and I was the associate conductor. And we became good friends and worked together, and, um, and uh, then he became the artistic director here, and I got to w- start working with him here. And I've just been so impressed with his brilliance as a visionary 
for this organization, the Joffrey Ballet, making it into um, truly one of the, the great ballet companies of this world. Absolutely it is. Did you always have an interest in music? Did you always know you would do something yeah, in music? I, 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 am, I am that orchestral conductor that you know found his way somehow into the world of ballet. I still ask myself, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, and I work a lot um, with, with symphony orchestras as well, just on pure onstage uh, music concerts. Um, but a huge part of my activity now is working with the Joffrey Ballet and working with the fabulous Chicago Philharmonic Orchestra in the pit, which is also the orchestra of which I am the artistic director. And so I get to work with them in many different uh, projects throughout the year. And we have such a blast playing our hearts out for the Joffrey Ballet. I was going to say, how much fun is that? You ha- How many people are there in the orchestra? Well, the Chicago Philharmonic is, a, is an organization that has some 200 musicians from which we choose whoever is needed for and whoever is most appropriate for every project. Um, and so for the Joffrey Ballet, we might have 40, 50, 60, 70 people uh, in the pit, depending on what's needed for, for each ballet. Um, and recently, we just got finished playing a run of Nutcrackers. Oh. Uh, Oh, I remember with the Joffrey. We did uh, we did some twenty nine performances of it, and I have to say, I was thrilled by the fact that the musicians are so excited by playing for an organization of the scope and vision and breadth of the Joffrey Ballet that there, that there was never a performance that they were not playing full out with full intensity and excitement. Nobody was phoning it in or right. mailing it in, um, even though they were playing the same music twenty nine times. Um, they played it. They told the story musically of the Nutcracker um, from beginning to end with full, fresh energy and passion every single time. And I, I, I'm thrilled about that. But it's, it's largely because I have to say of the, the tone that Ashley Weeder has set here with the Joffrey. It's, um, every performance is of the utmost importance. Um, and there are no, unimportant uh, shows at the Joffrey. And that was a beautiful undertaking, too, because it was a little bit of a different rendition of the Nutcracker. It was a Chicago theme set during the World's Fair. So does that change the music, too? Um, in a way, uh, I mean, it's still it's still the Nutcracker that yeah. uh, everyone knows, um, but uh, there are certain things that made it more specific to the story that we were telling about the World's Fair. And this was with a different choreographer, and uh, again, someone that Ashley trusts and found for us, and he also had that vision of setting the Nutcracker during the World's Fair in Chicago, which was a a, a real, to me, just a, a brilliant masterstroke. It just so happens that the Nutcracker actually was premiered just a couple of months before the World's Fair opened. So it's perfect timing. It's perfect And so timing. then to go from there to this ballet now, um, which has been commissioned, it's called Anna Karenina, based on the Tolstoy novel. Tell us about Anna Karenina for those who have not heard of it or have right. not seen it. Well, Anna Karenina is a, a, a... Well, nobody will have seen it because this is going to be a world's premiere. This is exactly what yeah. This is a whole new rendition. Um, but uh, but uh, Anna Karenina is a, is a great... Russian novel by the the guy who wrote War and Peace mm-hmm. um, is the story of of a, 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 a woman who is part of a, a one of many unhappy families. The way that this that this um, book opens, it famously it says, "Every happy family is alike. Mm-hmm. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way." Those are the first two lines of the novel Anna Karenina, and and that is depicted. Um, in this ballet, as we find that Anna Karenina, the wife of a bureaucrat, falls for 
the dashing Count Vronsky and everything that that follows from that is a tragic story, um, extremely romantic story. And the choreographer that um, Ashley found to bring this to life in a modern version is a brilliant Russian choreographer for whom Anna Karenina is just part of his lifeblood. It's great Russian literature. It's Tolstoy's uh, tragic tale of a married aristocrat and her ongoing love triangle in, in Imperial Russia. That's a right. story that explores the complex politics of family, religion, morality, and gender. Many of these could be linked to today. Uh, absolutely. Everything from Russia to like, your love triangles. And imagine trying to tell that story in movement yeah. rather than in words, because that's what ballet does. So, So we are... Listening to the music and feeling the incredible moods um, and 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 mood swings that uh, that are there in the music, and then watching as the dancers embody these musical moods in their motions in such a way that they make the audience understand what's happening in this complex Russian novel. It's quite amazing. Um, the choreographer is named Yuri Posokov, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about him because Please. Ashley Weeder and I have quite a history with him. Ashley and I both used to work, as I said, at the San Francisco Ballet. And at that time, 20 years ago, Yuri Posakov was a principal dancer and one of the great dancers of the world. And at that time, while we were all working there together, he choreographed his first ballet and it was really brilliant and from that point on i'm thrilled to be able to say that i saw the birth of a choreographic career yuri posokov then went on to have this amazing career as a choreographer around the world he's choreographed for the, all the great companies including the bolshoi ballet and he now was the one that ashley chose wisely uh, to create this new Anna Karenina for us. You've been all over the world. What's it like being in Chicago, specifically at the Auditorium Theater? Because I think we right. have this, uh, we have this, uh, this prejudice being born and raised here, and mm. and seeing. I actually saw my first play ever, Miss Saigon, at the Auditorium right. Theater. What's it like for you, though? You've been all over the world. How does Chicago right. compare? Well, I, I have to say that my impression of Chicago as a, a person growing up uh, it was very different. I grew up in Boston. Uh -huh. And, you know, Boston's a fantastic cultural city, fantastic. But I, being a music person, I always wanted to know what's the best orchestra in the country. And my college roommate, who came from Chicago, and I would always have arguments. It's the Boston Symphony. No, it's the Chicago Symphony. Yes. And from that point on, I realized that Chicago has incredible arts. So so I, I never had any... Uh, any of the jaded feeling that you say people grow up here might sometimes have, uh, I always thought of this as one of the crown jewels yeah. of, of American culture. That's how we feel, too. And um, so so coming here, I, I've not been disappointed now that I've lived here for the last seven, eight years, and working with the Joffrey Ballet, a world-class ballet company, with my orchestra, the Chicago Philharmonic, a world-class orchestra, in the Auditorium Theater, which is a gorgeous hall. Uh, it's it's stunning. It's a it feast stunning. for the senses. It is yeah. stunning. At the auditorium, you probably know it's the second biggest hall in the world after the. I mean, sorry, in the United States after the Met, um, it's the second biggest concert hall in terms of number of people. And I don't think there's a bad seat. You could sit in the last row in the auditorium yeah. and still have a great view. Yeah, that's true. Although it would be, almost be like looking through a telescope. Because yes, because it's so narrow. Yeah, four thousand people. Mm -hmm. um, I think the auditorium was could have been the first 
hall in the country to have air conditioning. Anyway, they had a block of ice, a huge block of ice that they would blow air over. This is around the time of the World's Fair, of course, back then. But, um, you know, uh, obviously, uh, it's an architectural marvel. It's gorgeous to look at. And we love we love playing there. Scott, you said there's there's 200 members of the Chicago Philharmonic. So every right. t- more than 200. If every time there's a production, mm-hmm. do the members have to audition for whatever whatever they're going to be no we playing in? you know some some of them are um s- let's say they're specialists in baroque 17th 18th century music there are some of them who are specialists in jazz okay um if we need a saxophone player who can really wail as opposed to a very elegant french saxophone player we've got them within our ranks um if we need great a great concert master violinist to lead the string section we have several from which we can choose so it's it's big in the sense that no matter what style of music that we're called upon to play if it's a movie score you know, if it's a gospel thing, if it's a, an evening with Johnny Mathis, whatever it may be, we have people, Lady Gaga, Tony Bennett, we played for them. Yes. <laughs> Ravinia, yes. Um, whatever it may be. I we, saw that show, by the oh, way. Oh, you did. It was awesome. wonderful. Uh, there, there are people who are specialists in, in any given style. So that's what I mean. It's a, it's a very diverse group of musicians for the for the joffrey ballet we have um a a smaller group from which we we choose our orchestra um and um and it's always just a beautiful group of musicians we're talking to scott speck the joffrey musical director and we're going to talk more about anna karenina which just begins in a couple of weeks here at the auditorium theater and it's only in town for it's less than two weeks it's less than yeah less than two weeks two weeks pretty much the second half of uh, february yeah so get your tickets we're going to talk a little bit more about that after this on 720 WGN. Nine fifty one seven twenty WGN. We're talking to Scott Speck, the musical director at the uh, Joffrey Ballet, actually the Chicago Philharmonic, led by you. Let's turn you on. There you go. <laughs> what a cool title. Do you ever? Do you Music just pitch director. yourself? I mean, do you pitch yourself and say, I am standing here. I am the musical director, and I am standing in the auditorium theater here in Chicago. For the world I mean, premiere of Anna Karenina. I think that, you know, after a, a career of, of working as music director at uh, other organizations and so on, it's not so unbelievable to me that I am the music director. But what is unbelievable is standing there realizing that these brilliant artists of the Joffrey Ballet, these incredible athletes and artists, which is what they are, Cannot start dancing until I wave my baton. I know that's that's a wild. And thought. they do watch you. They they do yeah, pay well, attention and, to and, you. And they're listening to the music. Obviously, <laughs> yes. they're and my my job. Well, we have a job. It's like a pas de deux between. I say this between the dancers and me. My job is to uh, is to wave my arms in in the tempo that will best suit their bodies. And their energy level at this moment on this day. And that's different for every dancer, and it's different for each dancer on every day. Depending on how they're feeling, I've got to somehow be in tune with that. And their job, then, is to move their bodies in a way that suits the musical phrase that they're listening to. So they are expressing the music physically. Um, it's, it's like music made into a, a physical being that you can see. That's what ballet is, right? A lot of people say ballet is is vis- visual music. It's beautiful. It really is. It yeah. is. I'm glad you said athletic too, because and these are world class athletes. Oh yeah, I mean when I when I'm standing there at the piano in the studio and someone does a triple lutz and lands at my feet, or actually it's called a double tour. <laughs> <laughs> of course, a double tour and lands at my feet. It's really quite uh, quite astounding. That's when I pinch myself. 
That's magical. That really yeah. is. We're talking to uh, Scott Speck, the musical director of uh, Anna, Anna Karenina, uh, the Joffrey Ballet, which is going to be at the Auditorium Theater. It's 10 performances only, February 13th through the 24th. Get your tickets now. Again, 10 performances. This is a perfect Valentine's yeah. Day gift. Take Absolutely, your sweetheart, go for dinner. because it opens the day before Valentine's, yeah, yeah. on the 13th. Let's yeah. talk about the composer, too. Sure. The composer, so the way it works is when we hire a choreographer to do a new uh, ballet, he'll usually choose a composer who he th- really feels a sympathy with that he's worked with before, and in this, that's the case. So our choreographer, Yuri Posakov, had worked before with this Russian composer, Ilya Demutsky is his name, a very, very active composer especially in russia and europe and has written a lot of film scores and also written for ballets before including ballets for this choreographer he's young he's 35 years old and he's already really accomplished he's considered one of the bright lights in the world of music especially in russia 35 i i'm going to kid him because at 35 mozart had already written 41 symphonies and died (laughs) but (laughs) but we want him around for a long time we want him around for a long time um, and what's really cool is that Ilya Demutsky, although he's a living 21st century composer, definitely, I can tell from his music, feels himself as part of the long Russian symphonic tradition. So, you know, who wrote the music to Nutcracker and Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty? That was Tchaikovsky, mm-hmm. Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Who wrote the music to Romeo and Juliet and Cinderella? That was Prokofiev. And Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev are considered by many to be two of the greatest composers for ballet, not just for ballet, for anything, but but especially for ballet, of anyone in the world. And Ilya Demutsky feels himself to be in that tradition. So, you know, the, 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 the uh, ballets of Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev include, among many other marvels, um, they include long, drawn-out melodies that are so memorable from the moment you first hear them that it's like you wonder that they ever had to be composed at all and that they weren't just there from the beginning of time. If you think about all the incredible melodies of the Nutcracker, which is an unending fountain of melody, a different melody every minute for two hours, that's what Tchaikovsky was able to do. Uh, And that's what Prokofiev was able to do. And to my huge surprise, when going through this score of Ilya Demutsky, that's what Ilya Demutsky is able to do. So... Such an unusual thing for a modern piece of music written in 20, I think he wrote it in 2017, is when he actually finished the score for this ballet that will be first heard by anyone live in 2019. But it's just as memorable as uh, many of the ballets by the older Russian composers. So people think that they're coming to hear this spiky piece of dissonant modern music, but they're going to come out humming the tunes to Anna Karenina. And that is a huge uh, accomplishment. It is. To be able to... It's like equivalent in the world of comedy, to write a joke that really makes people laugh. Well, to be able to write a melody that people remember the next day, that's a huge accomplishment. And that's something that Ilya Demutsky has the talent to do. So... Boy, did our choreographer choose right when he chose this composer. I love your vivid description. I mean, I feel oh, like I'm, I'm I feel like I'm already hearing a melody. It's like it yeah. just reaches into your soul and you get goosebumps when you listen to it. But you know it. what? So what we've been doing in rehearsals now with the with the dancers is playing the piano, trying to simulate what it's going to sound like with the orchestra, right? Try, playing the melodies, but the but believe it or not, this is the thing that blows my mind. The dancers are not going to actually hear 
their music that they're dancing to played in the way that it was composed until the day before opening night. Holy cow. Because that's when they, we have the first rehearsal with orchestra. That really is and a live, live performance that they're is. hearing it for the first time. It is, for the first time. Yeah, and then, of course, the audience on, on Thursday the 13th, on Wednesday the 13th, excuse me, which is the, the, the day that it opens, is going to hear this music performed for the very first time ever in the world. Well, we want to be there for it. Th- Scott, thank you so much. My pleasure. I love thank your you, descriptions. Andrea. Please go see Anna Karenina at the Auditorium Theater February 13th through the 24th. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you. Anytime. We'll see you at opening night. Okay. More after this on 720 WGN.